Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a really incredible founder. I mean, he's uh, been on both sides of the table, uh, and I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit on the process of building, scaling, financing, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Raul Gandhi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and uh, tell, tell the story. So originally, you grew up in New Jersey. So tell us about your upbringing. I did. I grew up in a small, small town in uh, in New Jersey, uh, very close to the Pennsylvania border. So on the southern tip of New Jersey, uh, a town called Voorhees. Um, and that's where my parents settled down. They immigrated from India, you know, around the 70s. So um, really got my start there. And, um, and you know, great place to grow up. So I know that uh, obviously you have a couple of things here that perhaps shaped your perspective on your entrepreneurial mindset? I mean, obviously, one, your parents coming to the U.S., going after the American dream, coming from mm -hmm. India, and then obviously your your father as well, really going at it and, and having his own business. So tell us about this. Yeah, my dad was uh, such so, it was so fascinating, um, you know, watching him and, and, and really unfold and, and try to go after his dreams. He was classic entrepreneur at heart, uh, heavy risk taker, you know, probably, you know, overextended on the risk side, but um, really learned his trade in the hospitality industry. That's what he was passionate about. So he started his career when he came over here, uh, working at various hotels, eventually worked his way up to hotel management uh, for many years. And in, in the beginning of his career would actually go from our small town in New Jersey. Uh, he would travel on a bus coming all the way up to New York because that's where he was working. He was working at a Hilton hotel in New York City at the time. And, um, you know, the hours and the travel eventually really got too burdensome. And that was the first time that, that he sat back and really, you know, looked at his, his life differently, wanted to spend more time, you know, with me, uh, obviously when I was younger and then ultimately my sister was born and, uh, his dream was to always, um, own and operate restaurants. And so, uh, when I was seven or eight, I can't recall, I think it was like seven, he opened his first, um, franchise restaurant. It was an Arby's believe it or not. And that's where, um, you know, the wonderful world of restaurants and my, you know, time with him really learning the industry and growing up in that business, uh, you know, became various businesses after that. But um, I learned the trade of hospitality from him uh, very, very early age. So even as early as 10, 
you know, I was I was working behind the register with him and, and interacting with customers. And I would tell you, you know, something magical happened to me in that experience and became very, very um, important to my career and my passions. And, and I, I was so fortunate to have that opportunity um, to learn that. And it was the amazing impact you can have on just understanding customer behavior and being able to relate to consumers by listening to them. And, you know, simple things like when um, I remember vividly being so nervous when the lunch rush would come because we were, we were, we were running the business inside of a mall um, and I was 10 and I would see all these people start to come in line. And there was just so much nervousness in me of like what to do. And at the time, all I was doing was filling out, filling up sodas. But I started to, after a few times of this, see different patterns. And I saw the same faces coming over and over again. I started listening to their orders and started to understand that, hey, this person maybe liked a Diet Coke with their meal with very little ice, or this person loves Sprite mixed with, you know, the orange drink that we had. And, and you sort of get that repetition ready. And then by getting that ready before they even asked for it, it was so magical. And it, and that was an important lesson for me that really really held true, you know, through the through the rest of my career. Um, unfortunately, you know, for us, growing anyone that's, that's sort of you know running the restaurant industry understands how difficult it is. It is very cutthroat. It is very capital intensive. Um, you have to be you know right about almost everything when it comes to inventory levels to staffing. And um, there was a lot that we did right. There was a lot that, you know, my dad uh, ultimately did wrong too. And I think the biggest challenge we always had when I was growing up was anytime we saw a bit of success, we would chase after it and we would start to open up more and more. And ultimately, you know, that led to us being well over um, what we could support. And, you know, growing up, I'd gone through multiple bankruptcy processes. And so I saw vividly the downside of being an entrepreneur. Um, and that was, that was really, really hard to go through because, you know, one day when you have a stable life um, and, you know, you think you're on top of the world. And for me, that meant like my dad would walk home and I, at the time Nintendo was really popular, uh, just the standard Nintendo system. And, you know, I'd come home with, he'd come home with like 10 video games for me. And then three months later, we're sitting down with lawyers really trying to understand how we can keep our house. And it was just like the ups and downs and the, and the, the, the turmoil that you go through just trying to operate a business like that. Um, you know, really, really, uh, you know, steered me away from doing that early on in my career got it and was there like a point in time you know here especially during this experience where perhaps you know unconsciously you made that decision that one day you would have your own business you know it was um i i always aspired to it and i aspired to it for different reasons than most you know than, than some you know i shouldn't say most but at least many of the entrepreneurs that i talked to like i never cared uh and it sounds weird about the big payday like, of course, you all want to live comfortably. To me, it was it was really about passion for building and passion for being able to deliver amazing experiences and to change the way people operated because that's where the world was moving and the show industries and make advancements. It was things like, you know, the, the companies that I admire were like, you know, you look at IBM and GM and places like that, that have had to constantly innovate their companies that have been around for almost hundred years that, you know, have changed the face of their organization or their focus to adapt to the times so they could stay. Um, that to me was very, very interesting and passionate. And so the earlier part of my career was, you know, candidly driven by just, Hey, I wanted stability. 
Um, and so, you know, when I, when I graduated school, uh, and by the way, just to even get through school, I mean, I had to take odd end jobs. I was a bartender. I was working in, in retail stores. I was doing almost everything to sort of you know, even help kind of pay my way through school. Um, and then ultimately, like when I came out, I had an opportunity to join an investment bank and learn uh, all about the finance world. And that was super interesting to me because I knew those fundamentals would have to, you know, I'd have to master them in order to eventually be able to build a business that I think could be a, a business that could go well beyond me. And, yeah. you know, I would have my imprint on it, but it would be generational. And that was always a dream of mine growing up because I saw like how my dad chased it and I saw how that never really materialized. And that understanding the risk reward balance was so critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously, after this, you go to business school. Sorry, not business school. You go to university, then you do investment banking. So obviously, here you're able to see perhaps, you know, what makes a good company or a bad company as you're analyzing them. But after this, this was your segue into AOL, which is where really you saw your passion coming together. So tell us about this. Exactly. And so, you know, I had a very, very unique experience in banking. Um, I spent a lot of times with media company, a lot of time with media companies. That was sort of the sector coverage that, that I was given. And I learned a lot about how financial statements work, how to interact, how to raise capital in the public markets, how to understand fundamentals from a business, but mainly dissect and discern like the data and how it tells you a story on where the business could go and to marry that with the narrative. And um, what, what was really, really fortunate for me um, was that I got to t cover Time Warner at the time. And many of you may not be familiar, but Time Warner owned the AOL asset. And so I spent a considerable amount of time thinking through um, with our teams, like what could we do, what, what could Time Warner do with this AOL asset that, you know, clearly needed to move away from a dial-up business at the time that, you know, had everyone dialing up to a closed wall, you got your email, et cetera. But, you know, that world was changed. The internet was open. And how do you, how do you transition into that world? Um, and ultimately that led me to meeting the AOL team. And, uh, and I ultimately joined them. I joined them in that effort to take all this amazing content and software that they had created and used for different purposes and start to really bring it out to the world and more of an open system. And the way, you know, uh, you know, my job kind of tra translated was in order to help monetize all of that, we started to build an ad platform on this content that basically was now offered for free instead of through the dial-up world. And we used the cash from the dial-up world to basically start to accelerate that movement. And um, I spent, you know, almost, you know, four years in that business meeting with such amazing entrepreneurs across the country that were solving various different ad technologies because the world was moving in that direction. And then ultimately, um, you know, I, I realized, and, and it started to go back to my history of, of working with my father. Um, I saw this really amazing opportunity that was developing in the world. And that was, you know, where I learned patterns and, and talking to customers that were looking to eat lunch, um, I started to understand and see the power of software and how that could change experiences for people. And AOL really opened up my eyes to that. And so um, ultimately, you know, I, I, I left that business and had an opportunity to come to business school. I viewed business school and I went to Columbia here in New York. Um, I viewed business school as a great playground to be able to launch businesses and meet like-minded people. Um, and also to kind of learn more of that foundational stuff that I really knew would be so important in my ultimate goal of building a business that would last even beyond. Me. Um, 
And so uh, I, I did try to get multiple different companies off the ground. What I realized very quickly was I didn't understand how to raise capital. And so ultimately, when I um, finished business school, that experience led me to joining a small venture capital firm um, at the time called High Peaks Venture Partners, ultimately transitioned to now a firm called Primary Venture Partners. At the time, it was a $30 million fund with three partners, no real presence in New York City outside of one of the partners you know, coming up from the Berkshires two, maybe three days a week. And I was the first hire that they made um, that really tried to kind of take hold of what was happening at the time in the city, which was you were seeing you know, a proliferation of a lot of entrepreneurs that were trying to tackle um, I, you know, really big ideas with technology, but, you know, still the infancy of like when New York tech was, was coming up, which is when, you know, we had first met. Um, and ultimately, you know, I had a chance to meet with really, really great entrepreneurs and that itch started to grow more and more until eventually I had no choice but to scratch it. And then, you know, left that business, um, in late 2012, early 2013 to ultimately launch what you see today with MakeSpace. And let's talk about MakeSpace because obviously it's your baby. It's a, you know the business that, that you're in now and, and definitely one that where you learned that the early days were not as glamorous as you would probably read on TechCrunch or, or anywhere <laughs> else. So, so what, what, what were the early days like? Yeah, you know, when you, when you think you're going to be an entrepreneur, it just feels like magic. It just happens right away um, that your business is massive and, and you built something great. But no, it takes... What I learned very quickly, and, and, and keep in mind, I had just gra- I graduated business school. I'd started a career in venture capital. Anyone who's involved in that side of the world can, can realize like it's a very different lifestyle than what you experience when you're an entrepreneur. And, and uh, immediately, you know, it was like a um, it was like almost like hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, hey, this business that we were trying to build, which by the way, the opportunity came about because you know in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit New York. And um, traditionally in the storage business, which is what we do, which is, um, you know, next version of of full valet storage experience, um, you typically are drawn to a storage unit for your physical items when you go through some crazy event. And usually they call it the four Ds, which is death, downsize, divorce, disaster. And I had gone through, you know, a disaster, which was Hurricane Sandy. And um, I teamed up with two other entrepreneurs who had experienced similarly um, the, the, the self-storage experience at the time. And we were just taken back by how little experience there really was. And this was totally went against what I had grown up with, which is like, hey, you know, you can change customer behavior, really have an impact on someone by just understanding their behavior and listening to that. And, you know, the storage industry didn't do any of that. And so we started to ask ourselves why. Um, and ultimately, we realized that, uh, you know, because of the design of the industry, which is very much real estate based, it's about the real estate asset, not the customer experience of storage that they serve you on top of that asset, that we had this really great opportunity if we thought of ourselves very differently and thought of ourselves as a consumer business. And so we simply went to the whiteboard, which then allowed us to understand, hey, what were the friction points that we had? One, we had to go to the storage facility, which if you're living in a city, that's a really bad and hard experience at times Two, you know, we had to do all the work, like pack all of our stuff, pack our boxes, mark our boxes and take it to the facility. Three, we had to be the expert. And so I had to basically figure out what kind of space size I needed. Then I had to hope that that storage facility had that space size available for me. Um, and if that was the case, then I could go rent it. And, and sort of the entire experience was on me. So how do we flip that? 
And how do we, you know, start to say like, no, don't go to the storage facility. We can play Tetris and be a logistics expert better than you. And we'll do all of that heavy lifting and hard work for you. And we're going to use software systems to really help us do that. And in theory, that was amazing, right? And we were so excited because it was like, hey, this uh, whole idea of, uh, and we were described at the time as self-storage facility meets Dropbox, like manage your stuff like your files, the Dropbox for physical things. Like really, really those types of descriptions started to kind of come our way in the early days. Um, but what we didn't realize, which is where it gets to you know, your point, it's really hard to get a business off the ground was, hey, we want to do all of these things. But by the way, software doesn't solve the challenge of going to the customer. It can help you get to the customer, but someone has to do it. So all of a sudden, I was thrust into this situation where we had no idea how to build a logistics system. I'd never managed or driven a commercial truck before. Um, we didn't even know how to go lease one or get one set up. And you know, we were um, I, I was a finance background with a history of entrepreneurship. My co-founders were both, you know, one was a branding person and product. The other one was a technologist. And we're sitting here trying to file, figure out like how to build a last mile transportation system. And, and what I learned very quickly was, um, you know, sure, the, the, the easy way to do it and the way you would think to, to, to immediately do it is go hire someone to help you. But when you have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank and no way to pay that person, you've got to just do it yourself. And so that's what we did. I remember vividly walking into the, believe it or not, a Mercedes dealership because I'd seen on the street um, a Sprinter van. And I was like, I can't drive a big truck because I don't know how to do it. But I can drive one of those Sprinter vans. And I saw a Mercedes symbol on it. So we went down to the store in, in Manhattan on 58th and 10th, I believe. And we walked in and we asked for a Sprinter van. And the first, we got a couple laughs. But eventually, like, we signed personal guarantees on those Sprinter vans and myself and Sam. And we had five vans that we ultimately leased. But again, not that wasn't even the harder part. The harder part was I had to learn how to be the first driver. Like, the first 200 appointments were all me because we had to understand what our customers wanted. And I knew that. And we didn't have the resources to go hire someone to help us you know, learn that. And so it meant that each one of us had to pick different roles in order to get this business off the ground. And my role was on the operations logistics side, which meant I went from graduating business school to being a venture capitalist to all of a sudden driving a van 15 hours, 15 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and that's what it takes to get a, a real business off the ground. And I can tell you like our first, you know, early capital raises enormously hard because you can, you know, you, you think, like, hey, you've got someone with a VC background, myself, a product person and serial entrepreneur, my other founder, and then a technologist. But nowhere in that equation did we have a logistics or operations expertise. And that's the challenge we were trying to solve. And so, you know, we met with over 50 funds until we finally convinced a handful that, hey, we were audacious enough and scrappy enough to go figure this out ourselves. And that there was a real massive, huge opportunity here because the industry wasn't changing. And so take the bet on us. Um, and so that's, that's how it ultimately uh, unfolded. But really, you know, I spent two years learning the trade of how to be a last mile logistics driver. And I guess in that aspect, so that the people that are listening get it. So what ended up being the business model of MakeSpace? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so um, we, we've gone through iterations of this. And I think, again, it goes back to one fault of my prior experience was that because I came um, and was doing things at larger companies or finance services organizations, um, I, I thought I was uh, I thought I was really fancy at modeling and understanding business models. And 
Um, you know, what ultimately we did was we, we, we over-engineered our business model. And we learned that as we were building the business, which is a key uh, inflection and learning point for us. And when we started the business out, it was, hey, we knew that there was a storage opportunity. We knew that the current service that was offered to customers looked the same everywhere. So whether I went to an extra space or a public space, public storage unit, they're selling me the same thing, except the building's a different color or the person working behind the desk is different. So we knew that there was an opportunity that existed already. Um, but you know, we didn't know how we were going to really build a business around educating customers around that. And so what we decided to do was instead of looking at the industry and how they were designed, we decided to communicate with the customer differently. But the first lesson was we didn't know what the customer wanted. So that was my first mistake, which you would think coming from my background, I would that was the first thing I figured out. Um, we over-engineered a business model in the sense of instead of offering what the industry offered, which was selling you space, we sold you boxes. We asked you, the customer, hey, we'll do the heavy lifting for you, but we're going to contain your experience to what you can store inside of these boxes because that was easier for us to manage in the business and we could charge you revenue, you know, a fee for like a box rental. And um, interestingly enough, that worked very well in New York. So people understood it. They used us as not a storage replacement, but a supplement as like something that they could have an extra closet space in and they could get 15 or 20 boxes or even three boxes and store seasonal clothes. And we saw, you know, huge uptick in our business in terms of demand pretty early on. Um, and specifically in New York, that then classic mistake number two led us to think that we had a service that was replicable in every market across the, the, the U.S. And, you know, I'll go back to an earlier story of when we started the business, you know, uh, it's a classic thing that all entrepreneurs do or should do. And, you know, there's two things that you should do. One is take as many pictures about your journey as you can, because you'll be surprised at how fast it goes. Uh, second is you know, come around the table and get a line on what you think is success for your business. And we did that early on because I was the classic VC and wanted to wanted to really kind of define that. And um, remember vividly, you know, pre WeWork days, we rented three desks out of a company in China, out of a, uh, with four other companies that were based in Chinatown. There was one small Irish bar in that area, and we were at it, um, you know, celebrating uh, just kind of the, the launch of the business and our service and the website being up. And we were going around the table asking you know, each other like, what we thought success was. And we all had different answers. And my answer was, I want this service to be available in 25 different cities. And I want it to happen in five years. That's our five-year goal because then we know we've got something that's amazing, that's working, that the product market fit is there. You know, we've built something amazing that's going to be lasting again, which is a big theme you know, for me because that's what I'm really passionate about in terms of the business building. And um, you know, it, it would take a long, much longer time and a very different way of being able to do that. But we learned very quickly that, you know, when we when we started to expand early on and we went from New York into Chicago and D.C. for the first two markets we entered into that we didn't have demand for our service. And literally for the first six months of launch there, we heard nothing. We had no customer demand. And we learned very quickly that what worked in New York was very different in those cities because the space requirements were different. And by the way, the customer reaction to what we offered, which was that box rental, that um, fee that we had, which was over-engineered by me, um, didn't resonate with customers because they didn't actually know what the heck we were doing. Are you a storage company? Are you not? We can't compare prices. 
amongst, you know, what's available to us here. Like, hey, you know, we don't really know what's happening. And so ultimately, we, we realized very quickly that we had the model wrong and then had to pivot the business in terms of instead of selling boxes, we started selling space, which then became the inflection point, which totally changed the trajectory of our company. And we'll talk about that. And, and obviously, you know, like during this time, you know, like when you're still experiencing, you know, like product market fit, getting there, making it happen, you are also in parallel, you know, like dealing with with a personal situation, you know, with your twins as well in the NICU. Uh, and, and my question here is how, how do you get yourself back up and keep pushing, you know, when you're dealing with so much stuff in front of you? It, it, I mean, the stress, uh, so there's, there's a couple different areas of stress. And for me, you know, unfortunately it's sort of all hit at the same time. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm a dad to, to two beautiful and amazing twin daughters. Um, and they both had, uh, ha- were so excited to join us that they decided to come, you know, three, almost three and a half months too early. Um, and so that started our, our key battle with, uh, you know, basically survival for them for, for, for the first six and a half, seven months of their life. And really, um, really profound experience for me that, that changed my perspective on life, on the way I operate around risk-taking, you know, uh, and, and this was pre before we started the business. And so when they were about, you know, ultimately one years old and they're both, believe it or not, doing fantastic after having gone through, you know, several early surgeries and, uh, a tremendous amount of services that, you know, um, we had to offer, or, or, or the, the city was able to offer to kind of keep them at pace with, with, with other children that were, were their similar age. Um, it, 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 it really gave me the confidence that, hey, life is so precious and you've got to take your chances. And, and it brought me back to having a much better understanding of my father and the risks that he took and his passions where I didn't really appreciate growing up because we always lost. It was, you got to take your shot. And you can't overthink it. You can't over-engineer things. And even then, I still made those classic mistakes as an entrepreneur. But being a father and having that lottery ticket of kids that you know only had maybe a five percent chance of survival at the time, um, you know, was 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 a was a tremendous uh, tremendous learning experience and, and really foundational in my ability to get this business off the ground. But also to go through the ups and downs that we experienced and ultimately finding product market fit that happened almost three years after we actually started the business, which was, you know, incredibly scary after you've raised money and, and are building this business and then realizing that, hey, maybe you didn't, you're not, you're not doing it the right way. Um, and so how do you, you know, you very quickly move in a different direction that, that does resonate. And so all those lessons became very, very critical for me um, in writing the ship and, and making sure that we eventually listened to our customers and did address their needs and then the business took off. Um, but, you know, being a father and going through that situation and then ultimately the stress of it all, you know, trying to survive every day in a business because in, in an entrepreneur's world, it's very different from a large company. Large companies think of their lifetime in years or decades. I think of my lifetime even today in hours and minutes. And you, your stress level of not knowing whether you can you know, your business will be around, whether you're going to get that legal letter from a big company that's going to try to get you to shut down, which has happened, or, you know, whether you're going to hit payroll because you've got to get through a fundraising process and it's not done yet. And like, what do you tell all of these people that, you know, have, have really bought behind the mission and are trying to build this? And you're going to have all those inflection points. They say, and I believe it, and it's true with us, is that you have at least two or three moments in the business where you're going to die. 
Like you think it's going to happen. There's no way out. You're in a box. There's no door. And what are you going to do to get out of that situation? And I think, you know, becoming a father and seeing how hard my daughters fought and with the little probability of success that they had, but yet achieving it gave me all the confidence in the world that no matter what the challenge is ahead of you, you've got to stay logical. You've got to stay calm. You've got to do it for the team that's around you. And that if there's a will and there's grit and you're going to knock down walls, you're going to find a path. And I think, you know, our, our success today um, is largely a function of that. And that, that also transcends to your team. Your team starts to act that way. And so uh, it's, it's very, it's very, very interesting lesson for me. And it's a lesson I'm so grateful for, for my father, all the way to my kids who just gave me that confidence that, you know, no matter what, as hard as it gets, you, you got to keep fighting. You can't give up. A hundred percent. And obviously I've dealt, uh, say, you know, and the listeners know with a very similar situation as well yeah. with my twin girls as well in the NICU for 180 days. So I totally agree. And definitely these types of stuff, you know, gives you a ton of perspective on life and on right. everything. So, so I guess uh, moving on here to the, to the financing side. So, yeah. so how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, so we've raised just north of $150 million today. Uh, and, you know, that's been, uh, it sounds like an enormous amount of capital, and it is. Um, and it goes back to early on what, what you know, as starry-eyed entrepreneurs, we, we, we didn't appreciate sort of the bigger scale picture because we didn't know it. We weren't, we weren't uh, sophisticated enough at the time, which I think was the only reason the business even got off the ground. So I'm so thankful that we, we didn't know what we were getting into. Um, but what we real what we realized quickly was that one we had this enormous software challenge, which was you know these as I was driving the van, understanding that oh my gosh, like we have to have customized routing systems because we need to tell drivers where to go and how to get there. We also had this challenge of we've got all this stuff coming into our system, which is very different from an e-commerce business, which would go off the shelf. Instead, we're keeping stuff. And we're keeping it for years because that's how long customers use the service. It's a multi-year lifetime. And, um, you know, how do we store that and where do we put it? And then now all of a sudden we had to realize that, hey, we needed to open up all these warehouses because we can't afford to have real estate sitting inside of the city. But these industrial parks offered a great opportunity for us to be able to create storage space. And all these things had costs, not to mention like the technology that I mentioned in the real estate, but you also have to market your service. and. Um, we didn't appreciate how capital intensive it was, it, you know, the first five years. And it goes back to my story on where we wanted to be five years after we started the service. You know, we'd raised $78 million. We'd raised from mostly technology VCs that, you know, many are familiar with that are either based in the Valley or on, in LA or, or in New York. And it was around the promise of if you build the systems the right way that can scale out, ultimately, you could solve the infrastructure real estate problem. But there were two very different things, and there were phased approaches. And the first phase was the software development, which took us five years. At the same time, we entered into four markets. And believe it or not, it took us $78 million to support that business, just to give you a sense of how capital intensive it was. Um, and so back in 2018, once we had you know, really found success in our business model, we knew we had product market fit. Finally, in Chicago and D.C., they were ramping where we really wanted to go. We were selling space. We had the attention of the incumbents. We now had this next phase, phase two of the challenge, which was how do we go into 25 markets, which was the goal. 
Um, and so really at the time, the only thought process I had when we entered that phase and we started the fundraising path in fall of 2018 was, um, I had to go raise a ton of capital. I have to go raise hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to go build this infrastructure. And that meant going to open up warehouses. And that meant I had to become a real estate expert overnight. And I was talking to large scale real estate investors all the way through, you know, the bigger growth funds at the time who were, you know, were giving enormous amounts of capital to entrepreneurs like me to go, you know, take really big challenges uh, for the big outcome, like soft banks of the world, et cetera. Um, and as I was going through these conversations, I was realizing like I am not nearly enough of an expert to give the confidence of something that's tried and true. Like this is not a new playbook. I can go hire a real estate person to go help me figure the strategy out. I certainly am not built to do that. Um, but yet I'm going to ask these, you know, large-scale investors to go bet on me to go figure that piece of it out. And and, and something just seemed off. And so um, as I was going through that process, I was um, introduced to a, a large public company called Iron Mountain, who many of you are probably familiar with based on their document storage business, their large-scale $20 billion enterprise value company that you know, serves today over 95% of, of, of Fortune 1000 businesses in terms of just their document storage. And fascinatingly enough, had um, really built an early presence in consumer valet storage, which is what we were doing. Because they viewed that, the infrastructure that they built, they knew that that could actually work for this type of business. Uh, but they didn't have the capabilities on the marketing and technology side, yet we did. And, you know, simple enough, when we ha- had first-level conversations, um, you know, it was, hey, what if we had an idea, what if we could marry our strengths somehow? And obviously, with a big company like that, you don't talk about that from a fundraising perspective. It then immediately turns and shifts gear especially to their organization to, you know, how do we, how do we, should we acquire this business? Should we build it under the Iron Mountain infrastructure? Um, is there a path to do that? And that wasn't completely of interest to us. And I think, you know, the board, uh, my board, which is, you know, at the time consisted of many early stage investors were really enamored by the idea of taking on hundreds of millions of dollars and going to build this infrastructure ourselves. But I knew the challenges and risk and execution around it and, you know, didn't have their support to think more strategically about it up front. Um, but, you know, had to navigate a very complicated uh, process where you have to figure out the incentives of this large public company. But what if we could create a joint venture that married both of our strengths and then raise capital on that and solve the scaling problem? Because I could use Iron Mountain's back-end infrastructure and they could now use make spaces, front-end software technologies, including logistics technologies that they didn't have? And could we marry these strengths together, remain independent, and then really t- you know, change the trajectory in the business? Uh, that process took nine months, and ultimately we announced it in March of uh, 2019, a joint venture with Iron Mountain that immediately took us from four markets to 24 markets, ultimately into 31 markets. It took a several hundred million dollar uh, uh, effort and brought it down to roughly $30 million, which is the round we raised at the time. And we set up the scale. We set up the scale that was so impossible to even think at the time because we looked far more strategic. And after months and months of convincing to the board, I think they understood that, hey, the, the, the risk and markets changing, the risk in going to take on large scale leases, this is pre-WeWork. So people hadn't realized that there was a lot of risk in 
and you know how businesses were operating and um, how aggressive people were, were were being in terms of risk. You know, they finally came around to understanding what the power of this platform could be if we could just be in a lot of different markets and offer this service at scale. Um, and so, you know, after a lot of you know internal conversations and battles, um, I, I, I was able to convince them. And I think, you know, uh, as we recently announced uh, over the pandemic, we, we we raised another fifty-five million dollars as Iron Mountain as our anchor investor um, to now really fuel the growth because we were so successful in building that scale. That's amazing. So, so I guess uh, now what I what I want to ask you is so that the people, I mean, we're talking here about the markets and probably, you know, like the listeners are probably wondering how big is MakeSpace today? Anything that yeah. you could share around maybe employee count or anything else? Yeah. So um, altogether supporting the business, we've got roughly 550 employees. Wow. Um, of which we labor share with Iron Mountain. So, you know, many of the warehouse workers and drivers uh, that, you know, interact with you on a day-to-day basis, sit under the Iron Mountain infrastructure as part of the joint venture. And that's roughly about, uh, 70% of the workforce. And the rest is comprised of marketers, uh, brand marketers, performance marketers, uh, technologists, a product team. to various engineering resources for the logistics and routing software systems to the WMS systems that we build. Um, you know, internal strategy team, finance, accounting, HR, all that fun stuff. And so that, that really comprises what I would call the front end, you know, make space consumer experience portion of it, whereas the back end is, is, is roughly, you know, the bulk of the business in terms of the employee counts that we have. That's amazing. What a remarkable journey, Raul. And I guess uh, <laughs> now I want to ask you the typical question that I ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, you know, it's amazing, you know, like how far along you've come. Right. And, and I've and I've had the privilege of watching you grow as well, because you and I yeah. met, you know, when you were at High Peaks. But I guess now if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, with that Rahul that was maybe thinking about doing something and you had that chance of giving your younger self one piece of business advice, what would that be and why knowing what you know now? Yeah, so so I think it would be two things. It would be one, which was a classic mistake that I knew growing up, and I under, tried to understand I should have had better pattern recognitions around it, is don't assume that you're more sophisticated or analyze things to death in terms of over-engineering because you think you know what the customer wants. When you're building a consumer business, your job is to listen. That's what I would tell myself is go back to, you know, when I sat behind or stood behind that cash register and I was nervous and I started to recognize pattern recognitions and I started to listen, right? I started to understand the customer better. That's what I needed to do early on is like, I understood that I had to get to the customer and listen to build the platform out, but I didn't listen enough. And I think if I had done that better, the business would have understood very quickly that the product market fit wasn't quite there. We would have been very, you know, we would have been able to address that a lot sooner. Um, and I think, you know, on the same vein, you know, understanding the risk-taking portion. Look, I hear so many times I've talked with entrepreneurs um, that have this amazing idea and they want to kind of vet it out enough with as many people as they can they can talk to. And I can tell you the people that I, and I did the same thing early on. And I can tell you that the one mistake I made was to listen to a lot of opinions. And a lot of people told me that I had a terrible idea. In fact, I think a journalist wrote that this might be one of the worst ideas of all time for make space when it came out. <laughs> and, and that didn't, that didn't change my conviction around it because I knew, I knew that that 
world wasn't going to change and that I could have a dramatic um, part of the process of the innovation. And I would have, and I continue to tell myself, just don't overthink things. The, the last thing you want to do is have an idea that you never execute on. And I try to take that to heart today when we think about innovations. Because look, MakeSpace, even if we're seven years old, we are so far from being generational. And again, that's my goal. We need to think about the next innovations of what, what where is storage going to go from here by listening? What else is what else are customers asking us for? How can that guide us to the innovations of the platform that we really want to build over time, whether that's taking things for junking or donations or other issues that you have and trying to create more space in your life? And how do we how do we facilitate all of that? And how do I get out of my way of trying to overanalyze things like a bigger company and having decks created and models built? Sometimes you just gotta be scrappy and just do it. And that's, I, I think, one lesson that I continue to learn that what I'll take with me in the future is I might be wrong and it's good to be calculated and um, it's good to have some conviction, but sometimes you've got to have the ability to react on imperfect information and take your shot. And I think, you know, I thought that I had that growing up and I thought that I knew that lesson, but you know, clearly in building this business, I've learned the hard way that, you know, you, you've got to really... Um, you know, you, you've got to put yourself in some very uncomfortable positions and take those shots. Absolutely. And very, very profound, Raul. Thank you for sharing that. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So uh, feel free to reach out. Um, I'm on all social media platforms. So my Twitter handle is at rgandhi10. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, on, on LinkedIn. Or uh, easiest way always is by email, which is just my first name, R-A-H-U-L at makespace.com. Um, and I'm happy to have a conversation. And thank you for taking the time to, to let me tell the story. Um, and hopefully it does have an impact on some of your audience. Amazing. Thank you, Raul. Thank you for being on the Dealmaker Show. You're welcome. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.